So we are going to be looking in the book of Philippians today. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 11. But this text that we're going to be examining this morning gives us so much rich information on the doctrine of what is called Christology, the study of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this particular text gives us so much information and it tells us so much about the incarnate Christ, the God-man. Many scholars actually regard this passage as a hymn of the early church. It began as a creed that was spoken and then eventually became a song that was sung. It's a section that shows how the author of all creation, the God of the universe, condescended to become a servant to humanity. So we're going to cover three main things throughout this passage. The first is the nature of Christ, who Jesus is. Next is the mindset of Christ, which was humility. And finally, we're going to cover the exaltation of Christ and the glory of the Father. So if you're in your Bibles in Philippians 2, we're going to read verses 5 through 11. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the richness of, of what you provided us in your word. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, God wrapped in human flesh, who came to this earth, who lived a perfect, sinless life, who died the death that we deserved, atoned for our sins. Lord, we thank you for who he was. We thank you that he rose again on the third day. Lord, we thank you that you have crowned him with majesty, that we may exalt him as well, that we may glorify his name, that we may worship him. Lord, help us to know who Jesus really is. Help us to imitate what he did in his mindset. And Lord, help us ultimately to glorify you in all that we do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first thing we're going to talk about here is the nature of Christ. The nature of Christ. If you're going to write anything down, this can be your first bullet point, the nature of Christ. So I'm going to be throwing around some big-ish words here, and I'm going to do my best to define them as I go so we can get a better understanding of them. So in verse 6, it says, "Who, Though he was in the form of God, Jesus was in the form of God. Now, that word there, form, the Greek word used there is morphe, which means the essential form or nature of things that does not change. So this means that Jesus was in the essential form or nature of God that did not change. The inward form of Jesus is never changing. Jesus possesses the full nature of God. 
And one important aspect of this that we need to understand is that Jesus didn't become God. Jesus always was, always is, and always will be God. He will always have the nature of God because he is God. So here, Paul, who is writing this letter to the church at Philippi, tells us that Jesus was in the form of God, that he possessed his very nature. But Paul's not the only one who gives us information about who Jesus was. Other passages, passages of Scripture also confirm that Jesus is God. The first thing we're going to look at is Jesus' own proclamation of his deity. The first thing Jesus claimed was pre-existence. That can be your, your next bullet point. Jesus claimed pre-existence. In John 8.58, he says, Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus also claimed to be equal with God. In John 5, 17 and 18, Jesus says, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. And so the Jewish leaders actually sought to kill him because he claimed that God was his father. Jesus also claimed oneness in essence with the father. In John 10, 30, he says, I and my father are one. Finally, Jesus claimed to be God's son which was understood as equality with God. In John 10, 36, he says, because I said, I am the son of God. And I'm gonna be hopping around a lot of verses, so don't worry about opening up to them. It's gonna be really quick. I'm gonna go from verse to verse here. But next, we see that not only did Jesus claim his own deity, but many others claimed his deity as well. So what are these claims that other people made of him? Well, in John 20, verse 28, we see that Thomas saw the resurrected Jesus and cried out to him, my Lord and my God. In Colossians 2, 9 and 10, it says, for in him, Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And this is Paul's description of Jesus as the preeminent one in all of creation. He was there at the beginning. Luke 2, 11 says, For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now Christ, the Messiah, is connected with the Lord here in this verse. In Matthew 16, 16, it says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Throughout Scripture, it's established over and over again that Jesus is God. So Jesus possessed the nature of God, but not only did he possess the nature of God, he possessed the nature of man as well. And we're going to look at a few other texts to see that. In John 1.14, it says, And the Word became flesh. The Word of God became flesh. John 4.2 says, And every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. So God coming in flesh. We call this the incarnation. Jesus was God incarnate. The incarnation was God's act of taking on human flesh. So Jesus was fully God, fully possessing the nature of God and possessing a fully human body. In Luke 2:40 and verse 52, we see that Christ had a normal human childbirth and we see that he had normal human growth and development, that he grew in wisdom and in stature. We see in John 4, 6 that he got tired. He sat down to rest. He got fatigued. Jesus had human physical limitations. We see that Jesus had human emotions in 
John 11.35, when he was attending Lazarus' funeral, Jesus wept for his friend. He cried. He had real human emotions. And we also see that Jesus had the same kinds of temptations that we do. But in Hebrews 4.15, it says, At all points he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. So this is another aspect of Jesus and who he was. Jesus could not sin. Because of his divine nature, it was impossible for him to sin. And this is known, we, we call this impeccability. The doctrine that says that Christ was unable to sin. In 1 John 3, 5, and in him is no sin. Jesus was fully divine, fully human, could not sin. And this union of these two natures, fully God and fully man, is what we call the hypostatic union. Perfect deity, perfect humanity. And this also means that both of those natures could not be subtracted or added to. They remained fully intact. So Jesus couldn't be any less God or any less man or any more God or any more man. He was 100% God and 100% man. Because of the hypostatic union, of the perfect union of humanity and deity, Jesus is what we call a theanthropic being, the God-man. And this combination of the nature of God and the nature of sinless man into one person is a result of the hypostatic union. And once this union occurs, it gives us Jesus. So this is who Jesus is. He's the perfect unity of God and man together, sinless and divine. This is the Jesus that we worship. This is the Jesus of Scripture. So Melissa and I have been married for almost five years now. We'll, be, we'll have been married five years in June. And I like to think that we, we know quite a bit about each other, that we, we know each other pretty well. We know one another's likes and dislikes and the things that make us happy and sad, the foods that we like, the things that make us cry and how we go about our day and what our normal routine is and just who we are as, as people. And imagine for a moment that I didn't know a thing about my wife. I didn't know anything about her. I just had this idea in my head of a wife that existed but lived a different way than I thought she did. And I told her every day that I loved her. Do I really love her if I don't actually know who she is? Can I really love someone that I don't know anything about? Well, in order to truly love and worship Jesus, we must know who he is. Blindly giving love to someone and worship to an unknown God is idolatry. We can't worship a Jesus that we don't know because then we're worshiping a Jesus that doesn't exist, a Jesus of our, our own imagining and making. If we think that Jesus is okay with living a sinful life, if we think that there's a Jesus out there that tolerates things that the Bible specifically says are sin, is that the real Jesus? Are we really worshiping Jesus or are we worshiping what we wish Jesus was? We don't love the true Jesus if we're doing that. If we don't know who he really is, we love our own idea of who we think Jesus should be. So let's look back at the text. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And some versions say, which is also in Christ Jesus. So next we're going to be looking at the mindset of Christ. The mindset of Christ. Paul is telling the believers of Philippi that they are to possess the same mindset as Jesus. 
In 1 Corinthians 2.16, it says, but we have the mind of Christ. Now, it's, it's very easy for us to see this description of Jesus, the description of Jesus that is fully divine and fully human and sinless and possesses all the attributes of God and look at it from a distance and say, wow, this is incredible. Look how awesome he is. And God absolutely wants us to be amazed by who Jesus is. But Jesus also lived a humble life on earth and God wants us to imitate it. We must make a decision to imitate Christ. And what is this mindset? Well, we're gonna get back to that in just a moment. But the next verse says, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So we already established that the nature of God was sealed to the nature of Jesus. But he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So the ancient Greek actually gives us this idea of clinging to something, grasping onto. Jesus didn't have to cling to the privileges of his deity. Some translations actually read, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And the ancient Greek for robbery is translated as a treasure to be clutched and retained at all hazards. Jesus was equal with God and is equal with God. But Jesus didn't have to gain or strive for or try to achieve equality with God because he already was equal to God. The equality with God was already his. He didn't have to run after it. It wasn't something he had to acquire, but he chose not to hold on to his divine privileges. But then Jesus says he emptied himself. Now, this can get very confusing at some points, what this particular text means by emptied himself. Now, the Greek word used here is kenosis, which translates directly to empty. But this kenosis or emptying has to be understood correctly. We must be very careful not to take this idea to the extreme, this idea of emptying to the extreme. And some take the, the idea that Jesus emptied himself of his deity. And this is what some have developed into what is called the kenotic theory. And it states that Jesus somehow removed or drained himself of some or all of his divine attributes, such as omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence. Now, this idea of the draining of his deity, this is a false teaching that contradicts Paul's next few phrases. Jesus did not and could not become less God. He simply chose not to cling to the privileges of the divine nature. And I've said that several times now. So what does it mean that he chose not to cling to the privileges of the divine nature? Well, by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. That is how Jesus did not cling to his divine privileges. Jesus didn't empty himself by losing divine attributes. Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and becoming human. He was born a human being, which for the creator of the universe and the author of all life, wow, that must have been a humbling experience. But he also, as a man, became a servant. He served humanity. And how did he serve humanity? Jesus healed the blind, the sick, the lame. He raised the dead. He worked miracles of food and drink. He washed the disciples' feet. He stepped in the way of a stoning. He preached and called people to repentance and to turn to God. And in all these ways, he served man. But nothing quite shows us the extent of his servanthood and humility like this. 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself in obedience to the will of the Father. And he could only do this by becoming a man. God, seated at his glorious throne, obeys no one. He answers to no one. But when Jesus left heaven's glory and was found in human form, he could then become obedient to the Father. Jesus was obedient through suffering. Hebrews 5.8 says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And just a few examples of how Jesus humbled himself. Well, first he descended from the glory of heaven to this sin-cursed earth. He took on the form of a man and not something more glorious like an angel. He was born in a barn with livestock. He practiced a humble trade. He waited over 30 years to begin public ministry. He chose common men, normal men as his companions and disciples. He was tempted and he endured. He experienced hunger, thirst, fatigue, and pain. He was in full submission and obedience to the Father and the Holy Spirit. Full submission to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now before the cross was a symbol for Christianity, before it was something that we hung up, something that we put around our necks, something that we wore as a, a symbol of who we are, it was seen as a much different symbol. It was seen as the most gruesome, humiliating, and painful form of execution that could ever be imagined. And Jesus chose to submit to this kind of death. Jesus was mocked, he was beaten, he was spit on, and he was hung in naked shame. What unfathomable humility bought our redemption. And this mindset of submission to the Father, of humility, is the mindset that we are called to have as Christians. Jesus set the example of humility by becoming a man, by serving, obeying, and through suffering, and finally submitting to death at the will of his Father. We are called to have the same mindset as him. Our application for this section is that Christ's humility is our perfect example. Knowing the incredible grace that we've been given, we must humble ourselves through service, obedience to God's word, and possibly even suffering and death for his name's sake. Finally, we get to the exaltation of Christ and the glory of the Father. The next verse says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And this verse gives us a general heading for the following verses. And believe it or not, highly exalted can be translated sometimes as super exalted or exalted with all exaltation. We see here how God exalted Jesus, that God the Father crowned Jesus with all glory and majesty. I want to read to you a quote from Charles Spurgeon regarding this passage of Scripture. He says, Now just pause over this thought that Christ did not crown himself, but that his Father crowned him that he did not elevate himself to the throne of majesty, but that his father lifted him there and placed him on his throne. God bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The name above every name, what is this name? Well, it's the divine name of Yahweh. Jesus has the divine name of Yahweh. But not only is this statement the name above every name referring to his actual name, Yahweh, but the term the name in the Hebrew context also carries the idea of character 
and person and worth. God declares that Jesus is above all in both name and worth. The next verse. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Not only did God the Father exalt Jesus above all, but the entire world will be brought into Christ's supreme subjugation. Some actually use this passage as an argument for what is called universalism, or the belief that everyone will be saved, of universal salvation. Now, this is not a biblical concept, but we see this used as an argument for it. From uh, a quote from the Expositor's Bible Commentary says, Paul does not imply by this a universal salvation, but means that every personal being will ultimately confess Christ's lordship, either with joyful faith or with resentment and despair. Every personal being will ultimately confess Christ's lordship, either with joyful faith or with resentment and despair. What a thought. Goes on in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So this verse is conveying the absolute totality of Christ's recognized supremacy. That all of creation will recognize him and understand that Jesus is Lord. And every tongue confess. Not only will everyone bow before Christ and know that he is Lord, but they will speak it as well. This will be a complete submission to Jesus in both word and action. Now, many envision this as a formal event where everyone, both in heaven and on earth and in hell, is required to bow the knee to Jesus and declare that he is indeed Yahweh, Lord of heaven and earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord. We know of Christ's pre-incarnate existence, like we talked about, that he existed as deity eternally before he was born on earth, but he was not worshipped as God until he appeared to men. The Expositor's Greek Testament says he has always shared in the divine nature, but it is only as a result of his incarnation, atonement, resurrection, and exaltation that he appears to men as on an equality with God that he is worshipped by them in the way in which Jehovah is worshipped. And that phrase that Jesus Christ is Lord is also a phrase that would have been very significant at the time that the, the Roman Empire ruled. Because all residents of the Roman Empire were required to declare Caesar is Lord, declaring their allegiance to the emperor. Now, thankfully, this was correctly interpreted by Christians of the time as idolatry, and they refused to declare that. Paul knows here who the Lord truly is, and his name is not Caesar. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now, all of this is happening. Everyone is declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone will bow before him and know that he is God. But why, why will all bow before Jesus and proclaim that he is Lord? Because it is God's will to bring glory to himself. God the Father crowned Jesus with majesty and exalted him above every other name for his own glory. Ephesians 1, 7 through 10 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, or some versions say according to his own good pleasure, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. God will cause everyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth to fall down in submission to his will. Declare that Jesus is Yahweh, the Lord of all. And he does it all for his own purpose, pleasure, and glory. Everything is subjected to him. His will will be done. Our final application is this. We know that one day every knee will bow before Christ. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord of all. Some will bow in joyous faith and declare that he is Lord with glad hearts. But others will be pulled to their knees by the God they despised and declare that he is Lord even though they didn't know him. Which one of those will you be? We must know Jesus, the true Jesus of Scripture. God wrapped in human flesh who lived a perfect, sinless life on earth, whose blood atoned for the sins of his beloved at his death, who rose again in victory on the third day. Humble yourself before God. Obey him through service, humility, and possibly even suffering. Bow before Jesus. Declare that he is Lord of all. Not just Lord of your life, but Lord of all creation. And to God be all the glory. Let's pray. God, you are above all. You answer to no one. We answer to you and you alone. Lord, you are supreme. You are ruling. You are beyond our comprehension. We thank you that even though we deserved the most gruesome death, that you sent Jesus to take that death for us. Lord, you just ask that we repent, turn from our sins, and put our faith in what Jesus did on the cross. Lord, we are, we are absolutely unworthy of your grace. Lord, you see our good deeds as filthy rags before you. They are nothing. We bring nothing to you. But God, you chose to give us everything through your son, that we may have a rich inheritance, Lord, that we may find redemption and true joy through knowing you, that your Holy Spirit would come and live in us and guide us and direct us. Lord, we thank you for sending Jesus, fully God, fully man, to live the life we couldn't, die the death that we deserved, and that you rose him again from the dead on the third day. Lord, we want to give you all the honor and the glory because you deserve it. It's all yours. Lord, we bow at your feet. We declare that Jesus is Lord. And it's in his mighty, precious name that we pray. Amen.